Welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I am your host, Lauren Burke. And I am your host, Hannah Chapman. And this week, we are bringing you another bad mixtape. These are standalone episodes where we pretend to be DJs, but instead of bringing you the top 40 hits by Megan Thee Stallion and Florence and the Machine, we're bringing you some long-forgotten stories and poems from some of our favourite women writers. Now, in many ways, I feel like this episode is an extension of our discussion last week with Dr. Melissa Edmondson about spooky Victorian fiction and haunted houses. So if you haven't listened to that episode, I don't know what you're waiting for. You should go back and listen to it. This week, we are going to be serving you some pieces by Emily Dickinson, Virginia Woolf, Amy Levy, and Edna St. Vincent Millay about hauntings. Now, I know you get spooked by ghost stories, Hannah. So I do. I, mm-hmm. You do. So, um, you know, I just want to let you know that we have curated a selection of pieces that sort of live in that little gray zone that you probably love so much. <laughs> so these pieces ask, if a house is haunted or if it's just, you know, your mind or your memories or your imagination. Mm. So I think you should be able to sleep tonight. Well, I do thank you for having compassion for my poor nerves. Thank you for thinking of me. Let's kick things off with a short story by one of our most requested authors, the one, the only Virginia Woolf. First time for Virginia on the pod, which is kind of amazing. Like, I feel like we should ring a bell or something, have some sort of like new author sound effect. I, you can dig one of those sound effects up. Like, <laughs> pause for the sound effect. <laughs> um, Hannah, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about Virginia, since this is her first time on the show. Adeline Virginia Stephen was born on January 25th, 1882 in London to Sir Leslie Stephen and Julia Princep Stephen. Her father was an author, historian and a prominent figure in the mountaineering community. Amazing. Amazing. And her mother was a noted beauty and served as a model for several pre-Raphaelite painters. Virginia had a large family as both of her parents had been married and widowed before marrying each other. She had three full siblings and four half-siblings. All eight children lived under one roof at 22 Hyde Park Gate, Kensington, where she was homeschooled. It's like cheaper by the dozen. Yeah, it really is. But at least you can buy like one bag of bread rolls, you know, and you're Mm -hmm. fine. Yeah. (laughs) That's what. In my head, I'm like, how many bread rolls do we need for this house? (laughs) Virginia was a significant figure in the London literary scene and a member of the Bloomsbury set, which was a group of writers, intellectuals, philosophers and artists that included her sister Vanessa Bell, E.M. Forster and Duncan Grant. Dorothy Parker famously said that they lived in squares, painted in circles and loved in triangles. Sidebar. There are quite a few books and films and documentaries about the Bloomsbury Group, including the 2015 BBC series about them called Life in Squares, which is now available on BritBox. And uh, I just want to note they are not sponsoring the show, but they totally (laughs) should. 
And then there's also the 2018 film Vita and Virginia. Um, and I just have to say that I love, love, love that the group's collective messiness just inspired so much art. And I have to admit that I have like watched all of these films, but I have read very, very little Virginia Woolf beyond like a few essays and letters. So so for anyone that is as unfamiliar with Woolf's work as we are, her most famous works include the novels Mrs. Dalloway, published in 1925, to the Lighthouse, published in 1927, and Orlando, published in 1928. And of course, the book-length essay, A Room of One's Own, which famously states, a woman must have money and a room of her own if she is to write fiction. So I, Lauren, have tried to read Virginia Woolf Mm -hmm. a few times. So I tried to read Mrs. Dalloway when I was 16 and -hmm. gave up. I think maybe I still own it. I could give it another go. Sure. I also have a book called Travels with Virginia Woolf, which was collected by Jan Morris. And I had like Mm -hmm. a bit more luck with that, but I also did not finish it. So I should dig that out and read it again. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, I think you'd really like it. Yeah, Yeah. I'd be into that. Virginia's going to come up again later on in the season. But I was recently trying to read an essay by her and I just was like, guys, I don't know what Virginia's on about. (laughs) That's how I felt with Mrs. Dalloway. <laughs> I'm not sure like, what's going on. What's going on? <laughs> I'm not all the way there, but I want to be. <laughs> now, Wolf's short story, A Haunted House, first appeared in her 1921 short story collection called Monday or Tuesday, which I really like that, by the way, as a title for a short story mm. collection. Um, then it appeared again in her 1944 collection that her husband and publishing partner in crime, Leonard Wolfe, put together in 1944 following her death. And that was called A Haunted House and Other Stories. And um, I think it's rather fitting that he chose this piece as the title for that book. A Haunted House is not a straightforward ghost story, but it is haunting. And it made me think a lot about my own relationship and the space that we share and the memories that like sort of live in the bones of our house. I think it's a particularly interesting piece as well because it's prose, but it's also very, very poetic. And Mm -hmm. clearly Wolf is like trying something new here. Um, In 1921, Wolf also published an essay on ghost stories And in it, she urged writers to find new and interesting ways of telling ghost stories. She says, To admit that the supernatural was used for the last time by Mrs. Radcliffe, and that modern nerves are immune from the wonder and terror which ghosts have always inspired, would be to throw up the sponge too easily. Throw up the sponge too easily. If the old methods are obsolete, it is the business of the writer to discover new ones. Okay, agree. The public can feel again what it has once felt. There can be no doubt about it. Only from time to time, the point of attack must be changed. Virginia Woolf would love a webcam horror film. That's that's all I've got to say about that quote. (laughs) That's what you're getting from this. (laughs) You know what? I think she would. Whatever hour you woke, 
there was a door shutting. From room to room they went, hand in hand, lifting here, opening there, making sure a ghostly couple. Here we left it, she said, and he added, oh, but here too. It's upstairs, she murmured, and in the garden, he whispered. Quietly, they said, or we shall wake them. But it wasn't that you woke us. Oh, no. They're looking for it. They're drawing the curtain, one might say. And so read on a page or two. Now they've found it, one would be certain. Stopping the pencil on the margin. And then, tired of reading, one might rise and see oneself. The house all empty, the door standing open. Only the wood pigeons bubbling with content and the hum of the threshing machine sounding from the farm. What did I come in here for? What did I want to find? My hands were empty. Perhaps it's upstairs then. The apples were in the loft, and so down again, the garden still as ever. Only the book had slipped into the grass. But they had found it in the drawing room, not that one could ever see them. The window panes reflected apples, reflected roses. All the leaves were green in the glass. If they moved in the drawing room, the apple only turned its yellow side. Yet the moment after, if the door was opened, spread about the floor, hung upon the walls, pendant from the ceiling. What? My hands were empty. The shadow of a thrush crossed the carpet. From the deepest wells of silence, the wood pigeon drew its bubble of sound. Safe, 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 the pulse of the house beat softly. The treasure buried, the room, the pulse stopped short. Oh, was that the buried treasure? A moment later, the light had faded. Out in the garden then? But the trees spun darkness for a wandering beam of sun. So fine, so rare, coolly sunk beneath the surface, the beam I sought always burned behind the glass. Death was the glass. Death was between us, coming to the woman first, hundreds of years ago, leaving the house, sealing all the windows. The rooms were darkened. He left it, left her, went north, went east, saw the stars turned in the southern sky, sought the house, found it dropped beneath the downs. Safe, safe, safe. The pulse of the house beat gladly. The treasure yours. The wind roars up the avenue. Trees stoop and bend this way and that. Moonbeams splash and spill wildly in the rain, but the beam of the lamp falls straight from the window. The candle burns stiff and still. Wandering through the house, opening the windows, whispering not to wake us, the ghostly couple seek their joy. Here we slept, she says, and he adds, kisses without number. Waking in the morning, silver between the trees, 
upstairs in the garden. When the summer came in the winter showtime. The doors go shutting far in the distance, gently knocking like the pulse of a heart. Nearer they come, cease at the doorway. The wind falls, the rain slides silver down the glass. Our eyes darken. We hear no steps beside us. We see no lady spread her ghostly cloak. His hands shield the lantern. Look, he breathes. Sound asleep, love upon their lips. Stooping, holding their silver lamp above us, long they look and deeply. Long they pause. The wind drives straightly, the flame stoops slightly. Wild beams of moonlight cross both floor and wall, and meeting, stain the faces bent, the faces pondering. The faces that search the sleepers and seek their hidden joy. Safe, 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 the heart of the house beats proudly. Long years, he sighs, and you found me again. Here, she murmurs, sleeping in a garden, reading, laughing, rolling apples in the loft. Here we left our treasure. Stooping, their light lifts the lids upon my eyes. Safe, safe, safe. The pulse of the house beats wildly. Waking, I cry, Oh, is this your buried treasure? The light in the heart. So Lauren, I understand why you said this had you thinking of your own relationship because I really got a sense that this is about a couple who are being haunted by themselves. Like, does that yeah. sound really silly? Especially no, not at all. When that ghostly couple are described as like standing over the sleeping narrator and their partner and it says, stooping, holding their silver lamp above us, long they look and deeply, long they pause, the wind drives straightly, the flame stoops slightly, wild beams of moonlight cross both floor and wall, and meeting stain, and meeting, stain the faces bent, the faces pondering, the faces that search the sleepers and seek their hidden joy. And here it feels like they've found what they're looking for, and it just made me think of people like from the future trying to figure out what they've lost. Mm-hmm. You know, that hindsight thing where mm-hmm. you like you're looking back at the time and you're like, oh, this is when it was good, but you didn't realize. And somehow that's speaking to the person that's like, yeah, in the house. I don't know. Yeah. A marriage is long. Is that what yeah. you're saying? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm coming up next week is the first year of my marriage. And I'm like, <laughs> she's standing over my bed. She's like, I <laughs> know, where is it? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> just just kidding, Sam. Love you. <laughs> now, um, I will say the first time I read that short story, and like you, I had to read it like a dozen times, um, it did remind me of the first few lines of the poem Haunted Houses by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And those lines are, all houses wherein men have lived and died are haunted houses through the open doors 
the harmless phantoms on their errands glide with feet that make no sound upon floors. So, sorry, Hannah, those ghosts are <laughs> everywhere. Audrey just like ran across. I don't know if you heard yeah, her. I, I had her. Her feet do make sounds on the floors, they, unfortunately. <laughs> so much. Now, our next piece is about returning to a place that you once called home and sort of that rush of feeling and of memories that come back to haunt you when you walk in. So similar, but a a little different. The Old House is a poem by Amy Levy, who you might remember from our last mixtape episode. Levy was a British poet, essayist and novelist born in 1861. Like Wolfe, she was born into a large London family and was the second of seven children. Her parents, Isabel and Lewis Levy, were supportive of women's education and Amy's literary interests, and her governess not only encouraged her to write poetry, but she also took her to women's rights meetings. Levy studied at Brighton and Hove High School and Cambridge, and after leaving Cambridge, Levy began travelling extensively and began work on a series of articles for the Jewish Chronicles. Levy also has a circle of friends that included well-known writers, feminists and intellectuals like Olive Schreiner, who I would love to cover on the show one day, Eleanor Mm -hmm. Marks, Ellen Wordsworth Darwin and Vernon Lee. As far as we know, there are no plays or movies about the drama within their circle, but there probably should be. Please, please, someone make this movie. (laughs) Levy is probably best known for her novels, The Romance of a Shop and Reuben Sachs, which were published in 1888. The Old House can be found in her 1889 poetry collection called A London Plain Tree and Other Poems. In through the porch and up the silent stair, little is changed. I know so well the ways. Here the dead came to meet me. It was there. The dream was dreamed in unforgotten days. But who is this that hurries on before? A flitting shade, the brooding shades among. She turned. I saw her face. Oh God, it wore. The face I used to wear when I was young. I thought my spirit and my heart was tamed. To deadness, dead the pangs that agonise. The old grief springs to choke me, I am shamed. Before that little ghost with eager eyes, oh, turn away, let her not see, not know. How should she bear it? How should understand? Oh, hasten down the stairway, haste and go, and leave her dreaming in the silent land. Now, last week, we discussed the following quote from Melissa Edmondson's introduction to Charlotte Riddle's The Uninhabited House. And that quote is, if the Victorian man was fond of saying an Englishman's home is his castle, then the Victorian woman in her supernatural fiction was saying quite the opposite, as the domestic dangers of these literary ghosts reflected, challenged, and troubled this view. When I initially read that, the bluebeard trope sprung mm. to mind and uh, how often we see it used in fiction, especially fiction that we read on, mm-hmm. <laughs> that we read on the show. I mean, we cover it quite a bit. 
Now, in this scenario, the man's home is not only his castle, but also where he keeps his secrets. So according to the British Library, Le Barbe Bleu, or The History of Bluebeard, is a centuries-old fairy tale. It tells the story of a murderous husband named Bluebeard, you guessed it, and a locked chamber filled with the bodies of his previous wives. And if you go to the British Library website, you can see images of a translation from English to French that dates around 1810 and has some really cool illustrations in it. Mm. The British Library says... Originally an oral folktale, the story was first written down and published in 1697 by Charles Perrault. The French author, regarded the father of the fairy tale, was the first to record many of our best love stories such as Cendrillon, or Cinderella, and Le Chat Bot. <laughs> I've realised my French yeah. is probably really bad, guys, but that, that's Puss in Boots. Despite Bluebeard's grisly plot, the tale remained hugely popular through the centuries. Bluebeard, although notorious for both his cruelty and ugly appearance, uses his wealth to lure women into marriage. Each new wife is presented with the house keys and instructed that she may enter any room except one. We follow the story of his last wife who, like those before her, yields to curiosity and unlocks the forbidden room to discover the gruesome scene. Although the tale has a happy ending, Bluebeard's last wife narrowly escapes his clutches. Its conservative moral teaches the reader to keep curiosity and temptation under control. Mm. Thank you very much, British Library. Never. Yes. (laughs) No, we won't. (laughs) So if you're less familiar with the fairy tale of Bluebeard, you probably have heard the term before. The word Bluebeard has, over the centuries, been used to describe a man who marries and kills one wife after the other. And you can even use it as a verb, Lauren, which would be bluebearding. Yes. If you text me on the regular, I'll use it. (laughs) I use it a lot. Uh, We see these Bluebeard references all over the place, too, right? Like, so, obviously... Jane Eyre with Rochester's Attic of Secrets. And more recently, we have the TV show You. Mm-hmm. Love You. Can't wait for it to come back in February. Um, not sponsored by Netflix, but totally <laughs> we could work it in. Uh, anyway, Joe's bloody murder box of secrets, multiple mm-hmm. murder boxes. Um, then, of course, there's the Blue Castle and Barney's Secret Chamber. That actually turns out to be, you know, a really lovely, lovely thing. And um, I have to say it was actually the Blue Castle that reminded me of our next poem by Edna St. Vincent Millay. I feel like we probably need another like new author bell here. Edna St. Vincent Millay was an American poet and playwright born in Maine in 1892 Now, her father was a school teacher and her mother, Cora, was a nurse who loved classic literature and often read to Edna and her sisters um, all the classics, Longfellow, Milton, Shakespeare. I'm sure there's some Austin in there, you know, all the good stuff. Cora also encouraged her daughters to write and enter her poems in local contests. Edna was a successful poet by the time she was 20 years old. And then at 21, she attended Vassar 
And um, I do want to add that Edna grew up in a pretty like liberal, free-willing like household where she smoked and she drank and she played cards. And then Vassar was, by contrast, like a very, very strict environment where the students were supposed to be, you know, these perfect young ladies. But Edna definitely was not. After graduation, she moved to Greenwich Village and lived amongst a community of writers and intellectuals. And like Wolf and Levy, she had a tight circle of very famous friends like Arthur Davison Frick and Susan Glassbill. And it's all very miniseries worthy. Uh, you can actually read more about it in a very interesting piece about Malay called How Fame Fed on Edna St. Vincent Malay by Maggie Doherty. That describes her as the bad girl of American letters whose bed hopping rivaled Lord Byron, which is amazing. And I want that like actually tattooed on me. There was a quote from that piece that really stuck with me. Hannah, will you we read this one? Her appeal was legendary, as was her voice, which the poet Louis Untermeyer described as the sound of axe on fresh wood. In her youth, she loved widely and shamelessly, and she was adored by a generation of young women for the verses she wrote about her transient attachments. Today, she is often remembered as the poet girl of the Roaring Twenties, traipsing from bed to bed in downtown Manhattan, if she is remembered at all. It's like, it's that axe on fresh wood comment for me. Yeah, it's pretty rude. (laughs) Can't stop thinking about it. Um, and can I just say, like, in general, I feel like this episode could be just, you know, retitled just because it's all about, like, brilliant bad girl poets with, like, a lot of big feelings and a lot of ex-girlfriends and, like, very sad endings, unfortunately. <laughs> so I hope they all get six seasons in a movie. Yeah, that's a really it's a really good quote. The Axon Wood comment is it's rude. And because of the, like... The rudeness of that and then like the description of her voice and all of the young women being in love with her. I was like, oh, she's George Eliot. She's the George Eliot of the Roaring Twenties. Mm -hmm. And there was another quote from the article where I was like, definitely. So it says, she was one of those women whose features are not perfect and who in their moments of dimness may not seem even pretty, but who excited by the blood or the spirit became almost supernaturally beautiful. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting that George Eliot was remembered in spite of her love life, but it kind of sounds like Edna St. Vincent Millay was forgotten because of it. Edna really deserves an entire episode rather than a few lines. But yeah, I do want to add that in addition to writing some excellent poems and letters, She also won a Frost Medal and a Pulitzer Prize. So amazing. Um, She also moved to France for a bit. She wrote some poetry about her ex-lovers. She came back, built a home, built a barn, and had this like amazing garden, which she all put together like with her bare hands. And then she um, died of a heart attack when she was 58. Her poem, Bluebeard, was originally published as Sonnet 6 in 1917's Renaissance and Other Poems. This door you might not open, and you did. So enter now and see for what slight thing you are betrayed. 
Here's no treasure hid, no cauldron, no clear crystal mirroring the sought for truth, no heads of women slain for greed like yours, no writhings of distress, but only what you see. Look yet again, an empty room, cobwebbed and comfortless. Yet this alone out of my life I kept unto myself, lest any know me quite. And you did so profane me when you crept into the threshold of this room tonight that I must never more behold your face. This now is yours. I seek another place. So I feel like an alternate title for that poem could be Catherine Morland, which I kind of mm-hmm. love. Or maybe it should be called Henry Tilney, as it's about, you know, those feelings of being betrayed by someone who thinks that you're hiding a secret or just bluebearding in your spare time. And actually, I have a fun bluebeard fact for you, because it said that uh, Austin wrote Northanger Abbey in either 1798 or 1799. And in the January of 1798, a play opened at the Theatre Royal Drury Lane called... Bluebeard or Female Curiosity, and it was written by one George Coleman the Younger. So even if she didn't see it, people would have been talking about it. Our next poet is Emily Dickinson. And while I don't think she needs an introduction, we're just going to do one anyway, just a wee one. Now, Hannah, can you tell us some key Emily facts? Emily Elizabeth Dickinson was born on December 10th, 1830 in Amherst, Massachusetts. She was better known for her garden than for her poetry during her lifetime. She was a notorious homebody and is often branded as this almost mythical, reclusive, scribbling spinster in a white dress. There is a lot of speculation as to what kept her home exactly. Madeline Olenek, director of Wild Nights with Emily, presents her as someone who had everything she needed between her garden, Susan, her family, and her writing at the homestead. Biographer Lyndon Gordon speculates that illness might be the reason. Emily was frequently ill, suffering from respiratory issues, troubles with her eye. There's evidence to support as well that she was epileptic. It's important to note that epilepsy, or the falling sickness as it was referred to, was horribly misunderstood, and there were people that considered epileptics as possessed or violent. Emily came from a very prominent family, so it is possible that she was kept at home to avoid being stigmatised. Her father, Edward Dickinson, was involved in state and national politics and served in Congress, and her brother was also a prominent attorney. So Emily once declined an invitation from a friend by saying, I'm so old-fashioned, darling that all of your friends would stare. And um, I just want to start using that from now on. And uh, maybe have someone help me cross-stitch it onto a pillow. It's like going to be my new thing. Anyway, Emily died in 1886, and that's when things start getting really dramatic. There's been so much Emily material out there, books, films, you know, the show Dickinson, which we love. But honestly, like this is the miniseries that I really want to see. So after her death, Emily's family discovered 40 handbound volumes of nearly 1800 poems. And there was a lot of dispute over what exactly she had planned for these poems. Now, Emily's sister Lavinia decided that they should be published. So she asked her sister-in-law, Susan, to prepare an edition. 
We know that Emily and Susan were close, probably lovers. Um, I definitely think they were lovers. And that Susan served as her editor and her muse and knew the true nature, you know, of her poetry. Mm. So it makes sense that, you know, she would be the first choice as an editor, you know, for her work. Yeah. Except for the fact that, like, Susan didn't do anything. She just failed to make any movement on the project. And after two years of waiting around for this book to come out, Lavinia then turned the manuscripts over to Mabel Loomis Todd, who was her brother's mistress. Okay. So, you know, interesting (laughs) dynamic there, right? (laughs) And Mabel was all too happy to select and transcribe the poems along with editor Thomas Wentworth Higginson. They published poems by Emily Dickinson in 1890. And in editing Dickinson's poems, Todd and Dickinson invented titles and standardized diction, grammar, meter, and rhyme within her work. And um, I do want to say, because the rights to Dickinson's poetry, you know, they're as messy as all this drama back in the mm-hmm. 1800s. It's still messy. Um, and I didn't want the Dickinson police coming after us. I decided to go <laughs> ahead and pick a, you know, the following poem from that edition. So beware this has been edited, but my favorite lines remain the same. <laughs> One need not be a chamber to be haunted. One need not be a house. The brain has corridors surpassing material place, far safer of a midnight meeting external ghost than an interior confronting that whiter host, far safer through an abbey gallop, the stones a chase, than moonless one's own self-encounter in lonesome place. Our self behind our self concealed should startle most, Assassin hid in our apartment, Bihara's least. The prudent carries a revolver, he bolts the door, or looking a superior specter, more near. What a brilliant opening. One need not be a chamber to be haunted. One need not be a house. Great. Excellent writing. I love the idea as well that the real terror is found within ourself mm-hmm. behind ourself concealed uh, i think this is my favorite piece from this mixtape definitely it kind of saved the best for last and mm-hmm. i also i've been thinking about that poem a lot lately in terms of emily being ill mm-hmm. as well and um yeah it makes it makes a lot of sense a lot of her like her poetry that i think people see as like maybe as haunting I think could be about actually illness. Listen, we'll be the first to say it. Thanks, Mabel. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) Team Mabel. (laughs) It's going to be a a scandal. Honest to Don comes out as Team Mabel. (laughs) Don't cancel me. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? Thanks, Mabel, for getting that out into the world. And also it was like messy and dramatic. And it made for great reading in Lindahl Gordon's Lives Like Loaded Guns, which is a book that I recommend all of the time. And I know that I have recommended at least half a dozen times on this podcast. 
So that is all we have for you today. Special, special thanks go out to our voice actors, Sarai Dives, Amy Weaver, and Clara Capilli. Next week, we have another very special episode for you. And to find out more about that, you can go ahead and subscribe to Bonnets of Dawns on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, or you can follow us on social media. You can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us at bonnetsatdawn at gmail.com. You can join our discussion group on Facebook, and you can buy our book, Why She Wrote, in English and Spanish, wherever you get your usual literary fix. Mm-hmm.